0: The angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord Christmas. I really do. The sights, the sounds, the smells, all of it. As I was reading the passage from Luke, and if you had your eyes closed and your spiritual thinking caps on, and if you were familiar, you might have imagined Linus standing up here, his head wrapped in a blanket, reciting the verse as Charlie Brown tries to direct a Christmas pageant of some sort. And Linus in that moment reminds us of the true meaning of Christmas. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. I love Christmas for all of its calm and bright. Ross, in the Alameda Trading Post at 3501 Alameda in El Paso, Texas, in a corner of the store was a stack, several of them, about this high of Saturday Evening Post. How many of you remember the Saturday Evening Post? Decorated by Norman Rockwell with these pictures of Americana that seemed to capture sometimes the best of us and rarely the worst of us. And so allow me in this moment to paint you according to Laura Hurt and the Gospel of Weird, my vision of a Norman Rockwell Christmas. Oh, by gosh, by golly, it's time for mistletoe and holly. And most of us prepare ourselves in the images of city sidewalks, busy sidewalks, dressed in holiday style. In the air, there's a feeling of Christmas as we hear silver bells ring by Salvation Army ringers. Then there are chestnuts roasting on an open fire and jack frost nipping at our nose or our dashboards as it may be. Folks dressed up like Eskimos when most of our days are in the high 50s. Malakalikimaka is the thing to say on a bright Hawaiian holiday. We make lists and check them twice. Three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree to see who is naughty or nice. And remind ourselves that there are only 16 shopping days until Christmas. We struggle to remember to wish everyone a holly jolly Christmas because it is the best time of the year. Or is it Happy Holidays, Happy Holidays, Happy Holy Days? I can't remember. Do they even know it's Christmas time at all? We sing, let it snow, let it snow, as each day draws near, knowing and glad that it won't. Jingle bells, Batman smells, Robin laid an egg. And what fun it is to ride and sing a slang song tonight. We're friendlier this time of year with our neighbors. He's a Mexican, and we don't know what to think of him until we hear him sing Feliz Navidad, and then we think it's great. Frosty the Snowman reminds us that it will be a happy birthday, and we are simply having a wonderful Christmas time. It will begin to look a lot like Christmas as we have decked our halls with balls of holly and Santa baby will slip presents under the tree to overflowing. A 54 convertible, too, light blue. Our homes smelling of cinnamon, oranges, and cloves. The hint of mint. A ham in the oven. Fala la la la, la 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 la. On that night, stores will quickly close one by one, except Walgreens, Circle K too, thank God. And on that eve, the sun will set slower. The organs will glow orange, then red, then pink, and then purple. Our imaginations wonder. O, little town of Bethlehem, if our hopes and fears of all the years will be met in Thee tonight. We will make our way to church in our Christmas best, hoping everything will be calm and bright. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, as we see three trucks sailing in late, parking close and not far. Lifting our voices for joy to the world, we welcome Emmanuel in Excelsis Deo, and seeing as if it was our first snow well, as we go till it on the mountain. We are as tired as three kings who traversed from afar. So God rest you merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay, for there'll be tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. But it is a holy night. Oh, holy night. And through it all, we wonder. Did Mary know? What child is this who laid to rest on her lap is sleeping? Did she know? The babe, the son, the spirit? Afterwards, we make our way home, swearing we heard angels sing on high to the newborn king, and we snuggle up in our beds with sugar plums dancing in our heads, mawn or kerchief, and I in my cap. The stars in the bright sky look down where we lay, and we dream of Jesus asleep in the hay. And at the end of it all, we wonder if the night this night will be calm and bright. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, from heaven's all gracious King.
1: Good story, Stuart. <laughs> one of the fun things about Working with Stuart is we have this strange juxtaposition that happens between us around both of us being traditionalists But not being traditional traditionalists So for example uh, as we were prepping this he he really was wanting to talk about the Rockwellian kind of Christmas and I wasn't Um, We had a discussion in this very room Thursday because for those of you who are church nerds like me You know this pink candle is supposed to be lit on which week The third week. And Stuart is enough of a church nerd to want to argue with the pastor (laughs) about why. And uh, the third candle is, is the pink candle, and it's lit on the week that you talk about joy if you follow the peace, love, hope, joy kind of Advent thing, which is not a requirement, by the way. Nor is it a requirement that you talk about this Luke passage on Christmas Eve, because this is not Christmas Eve. And we have not been struck by lightning yet. So we're talking about joy. The pink candle is lit on the second week, and we're using the Christmas Eve passage. But I am a traditionalist, just so you know. Even though Stuart would argue with me about it sometimes. I love love this story too. And I love this Christmas thing that goes on I love Advent. I love the anticipation and the waiting. I love the way that it helps me remember that we're waiting in this second Advent. This time of year is when we remember that we are waiting and actively working for the return of Jesus Christ and the fullness of the kingdom of God to happen, but we don't wait like you do in a waiting room in a doctor's office where you're just like thumbing through the magazine wondering how much longer he's going to spend or she's going to spend with that person and not you. You know what I mean? And we we wait in an active way we do things to try to usher in this kingdom in in its fullness because every once in a while we catch a glimpse of it and this story from luke there are two ways that it's typically preached the first is the rockwellian story like they talk about mary and you talk you talk about Like that she was probably 13, 14 years old and the courage that she had. And you talk about Joseph and his willingness to like let Mary have the lead and how random and weird that was, especially then, even now. And so you can push up against those edges a little bit with the traditional beautiful way of telling the story where you can imagine the star shining down on this little stable in Bethlehem, right? Like we get the picture and Stuart painted it for us better than I ever could. The other way that we preach this passage is you kind of talk about the nitty gritty dirt under the nails thing of the shepherd and what it smelled like in this cave or grotto or room where Jesus was born. And the fact that they laid him in a feeding trough with like animal slobber in it. You know, like we you talk about that part of the story and how that affects us. And I love both of those a lot. But I wanna, I wanna flip the coin over and look at that side for a few moments with you. We, we talked about the Rockwellian side. Let's talk about the nitty gritty side. There's an ancient um, historian named Josephus. You've probably heard me mention him a few times. I really like to read um, his history. It's written more like the way that we write history than most ancient historians write. And um, most modern historians think that this guy Josephus is someone that's credible. Because the things that he writes, and he has some sources for what he writes, that sort of thing. But he tells a story about some shepherds around the time that the Gospel of Luke was written. So I hope, I hope you know that Luke was not written as it was happening. It was like several decades later that the Gospel of Luke was written after Jesus' death and resurrection. And there was a lot happening. And when Luke, the book of Luke, was being passed around to different parts of the Christian world, there were these four shepherds. Um, 3 They were all brothers. And the oldest of the four shepherds, this is a true story, this is reality, the oldest of the four shepherds did not like the political culture that they lived in. The shepherds lived out in the wilderness. They were more like like uh, mountain men here in the United States, they didn't just like go out there and tend to their sheep and then go home and have a hot meal at their house. They lived out in the wilderness. And they didn't like the way the political world was operating at the time. So for example, one of the reasons tax collectors were so despised is because they ripped people off in the name of Rome. So they would be Jewish people who would rip other Jews off because of the power that Rome had given them, they would tax people uh, near 80 to 90% of their income sometimes, because they could. They were supposed to take a certain amount of whatever goods that they could collect and send it off to Caesar, and then some of it went to the Roman governor, and then they kept some for themselves, but oftentimes they would keep more or take more so that they could have it. They were robbing from their family members and from their kin and kindred. The census that we hear about was a way for Caesar to know how many people lived in an area so he would know about how much money he would be receiving. It was a foreign occupier living in a land. It's hard for us to imagine because we're not the people this story was written to. We've never been occupied. We typically are the occupiers. And it makes it hard for us to read because we don't want to put ourselves in the place of the bad guys. But that's really how you have to read the Bible, especially if you're a middle-class white dude like me. So Josephus writes about these four brothers. The oldest of the brothers decided he was gonna do something. He was gonna overthrow the Roman government. And so he talks his four brothers into going to war with him and they talked to a bunch of other shepherd friends of theirs who talked to other shepherd friends of theirs and there was a period of time that there was a, a large amount of guerrilla warfare happening against Roman soldiers and Roman officials and it was because of these four brothers, the one in particular, and he crowned himself king. You've heard the story of the, the Good Samaritan the people that they were afraid of on that road were the shepherds because they were going to rob people blind. They didn't want to do harm to Jews, but they if Jews got in the way, they were going to be harmed as well. But the other thing I've been thinking about this week is why do we have a preference for the Rockwellian story or the nitty-gritty story? What's what's the deal, like why, I, I think the nitty-gritty story, we kind of like the history, right, it engages our brains, which helps our imaginations get into play when we read the scripture, and it opens it up for us in a new way, and, and we like that, but we like the, the calm and bright of the Rockwellian version, it feels safe to us, to us, I think really what we like is that we want more of the good stuff. Whatever we think the good stuff is, we want more of that. And one of those two stories helps us figure out how this story about Jesus gives us that. But I don't think it does. I don't think this Jesus story gives us what we want. Because what I think is that deep inside of all of us, We know there is more to the story. We know that we want different, not more. We know that we need different, not more of the same, not a better version of what we already have. We want something completely different. Banksy, the famous graffiti artist, has a painting that I really like that has a homeless man holding out a cup and a sign that says, keep your coins, I want change. And I think that's us, right? Like deep inside, we know that we want to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we know that we want to see the world transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're anxiously waiting in this second advent for that to happen. But we know that there's more to the story than this or this. There's something more. And the reason we know that is because of this story. Because Jesus always shows up on the edges of our lives where we never ever expect to find Jesus. That's why one of my favorite places to go around Christmas time is a bar. Because you will find Jesus there, I'm telling you. We want something deeper. And I think when we catch small glimpses of it, we know it. We know it when we see it, and we, the word that we have for it is joy. Uh, I'll give you one example from my life. <clears throat> when, um, when Michelle was pregnant with Elise, our oldest, if, if you don't know my family, my oldest daughter is named Elise. And when Michelle was pregnant with her, I was on crutches because I jacked my knee up at a church camp acting like a 14-year-old when I was a youth pastor and so uh, I was on crutches and Michelle went into the hospital and they induced labor and things didn't go right. Things weren't going well. Elise's heart kept stopping and so they did an emergency c-section and I like I never ran so fast on crutches in my life as to try to get down to the operating room and um as as everything was happening I was trying to sit down on one leg with my crutches, and my crutches bumped the stool out that I was supposed to be sitting on. And I, you know, it was one of those stools that rolls real fast, like the doctor's stools. And I didn't know it was there, and I just kept going down and down, and then I just started falling. And so they had Michelle tied down like she was about to be crucified. And I grabbed the table arm to keep from falling, and it started bending. And the anesthesiologist caught me and put me underneath, put the stool under me and everything. And, and, they grab Elise, and they were so concerned that something was wrong with her. I swear, they just grabbed her by her feet and like pulled her out of Michelle's stomach. And she was upside down and screaming. And I was like, what are you doing to my kid? And I didn't even realize that I would have that emotion. Because what I thought was like, God gives you love, a certain amount of love, and you share it, right? Like, I loved, I loved my parents. And I love my in-laws and I love Michelle and I love my brother and I love my sister-in-laws. And like I had this love that I was sharing with people. But I felt like if I added somebody into my life, I was going to have to like take a little bit here, take a little bit here, take a little bit here. And then I could give enough to Elise. And I had this moment of understanding that that's not how it works. You know that. But I didn't know that at the time. It's not how it works. Like, you just automatically have more love, and it's like this overflowing fount of love that you give. I did not know that I could love another person that much and still love everybody else just as much, if not more, than I had before. And it changed me. In that moment, I realized, this is crazy. How does this happen? And it changed my life forever. And then a few years later, Emory was born, and I was expecting that. I was looking forward to like, I'm going to get to have that experience again. Where like, I realized there's just more love to give away. And it was completely different. It was like this peaceful thing. They literally wrapped her up in swaddling clothes, and like they tied it. They did the thing, and they tied it, and they laid her down on Michelle's chest. And it was just like this peaceful moment where I recognized a different way that God had approached me in that moment. We we love this story and we love this story, but we know that there's something more and different that we're longing for. I think those shepherds that night experienced the something different. I like to believe that those shepherds that were in the field were the guerrilla warriors. And I like to think that they experienced the love of God in a way that transformed them because I'm telling you now, God's love is transformative. You are a new creation in Christ. You're neither male nor female, nor June nor Greek, nor straight or gay or bi. You, you are those things like, I don't want to take that away from you. It's important that you ha- own who you are, but you're also more than that. You're being transformed. You're more than your sin. This is not you, I hope you understand that Christianity is not a sin management business. We are not here to manage our sin. We are here to be transformed by the power of God. Hallelujah, man. And I think that that's what happened to the shepherds that night. There's an author I really like named Frederick Buechner. And he wrote a, bu- a book or a story called The Birth. And this is an excerpt from it. It's called The Shepherd. <clears throat> Before I start reading this, you're getting all serious on me. Before I start reading this, imagine those guerrilla warrior shepherds. Night was coming on and it was cold, the shepherd said, and I was terribly hungry. I'd finished all the bread I had in my sack and my gut still ached for more. Then I noticed my friend, a shepherd like me, about to throw away a crust he didn't want. So I said, throw the crust to me, friend. And he did throw it to me, but it landed between us in the mud where the sheep had mucked it up. But I grabbed it anyway and stuffed it, mud and all, into my mouth. And as I was eating it, I suddenly saw myself. It was as... It was as if I was not only a man eating, but a man watching the man eating. And I thought, this is who I am. I'm a man who eats muddy bread. And I thought, the bread is very good. And I thought, ah, oh, and the mud's good too. So I opened my muddy man's mouth full of bread and I yelled to my friends, by God, it's good, brothers. And they thought I was a terrible fool, but they saw what I meant. We saw everything that night. Everything. Everything. Can you understand, I wonder? Have you ever had this happen to you? Have you been working hard all day? You're dog tired, bone tired, so you call it quits for a while. You slump down under a tree or against a rock or something and just sit there in a daze for a half an hour or a million years. I don't know. And all this time, your eyes are wide open, looking straight ahead someplace. But they're so tired and glassy, they don't see a thing, Nothing. You could be dead for all you notice. Then, little by little, you begin to come to. Then your eyes begin to come to. And all of a sudden, you find out you've been looking at something the whole time, except it's only now that you really see it. One of the ewe lambs, maybe, with its foot caught under a rock, Or the moon scorching a hole through the clouds. It was there all the time. You were looking at it all the time, but you didn't see it till just now. That's how it was this night anyway. Like finally coming to, not things coming out of nowhere that had never been there before, but things just coming into a focus that had always been there. And such things. The air wasn't just emptiness anymore, it was alive. Brightness everywhere, dipping and wheeling like a hawk of birds. And what you always thought was silence stopped being silent and turned into the beating of wings, thousands and thousands of them. Not only just wings, but voices, high voices, wild like trumpets. The words I could never remember later, but something like what I'd yelled with my mouth full of bread. By God, it's good, brothers. The crust, the mud, everything, everything. Oh, well. If you think we were out of our minds, you're right, of course. And do you know, it was just like being out of jail. I can see us still. The squint-eyed one who always complained of sore feet. The little sought-off one who could outswear a Roman. The young one who blushed like a girl. We all tore off across the muddy field like drunks at a fair. And drunk we were, crazy drunk. Splashing through a sea of wings and moonlight and silvery wool of the sheep. Was it night? Was it day? Did our feet touch the ground? Shh!
0: Shh! You'll wake up my guests,
1: said the innkeeper we met, coming in the other direction, his arms full of wood. And when we got to the shed out back, one of the three foreigners who were there held a finger to his lips. At the eye of the storm, you know, there's no wind, nothing moves, nothing breathes, even silence keeps it silent. So hush now, hush, there he is, do you see him? You see him? By Almighty God, brothers, open your eyes and listen.